Hey, thanks for checking out the weekly podcast from Chattanooga Valley Baptist Church. We hope you found this episode to be challenging and encouraging. Now, let's turn our attention to this week's sermon from Pastor Brian Carroll. C.S. Lewis famously said there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them in screw tape letters. The month of October, otherwise known as Hallow Thanksmas. You know what Hallow Thanksmas is. It's the, it's the season when the stores don't actually know what holiday to celebrate, so they just choose to celebrate everything. And um, and you you walk in. We had to go in. We had to go in Hobby Lobby the other day. And uh, if you don't struggle from any kind of schizophrenia or any kind of you know mental situation like that, going in Hobby Lobby in September and October will certainly push you over the edge because you don't really know what you don't know what's going on. Uh, they've got turkeys and pumpkins and scarecrows and Santa Clauses and baby Jesuses all mingled into one. If you probably looked hard enough, you'd probably find some 4th of July stuff scattered in the mix there as well. Hallow Thanksmas. Of course, we do know that the next big day on the calendar is, is the holiday known as, as Halloween. And of course, the month of October is, uh, is punctuated with the celebration of Halloween. And Christians throughout the years and even today have had various opinions about Halloween. There's probably even various opinions represented in this room here today about what you think about Halloween. And, and whether you think it's just an innocent excuse for kids to dress up or maybe you think it's something a little more sinister. There is no doubt that on October 31st and all the days surrounding the day of Halloween, there will be children who dress up like Captain America, the best superhero, They'll dress up like their favorite zoo animal. But there's also going to be plenty of kids who will don costumes of devils and witches and zombies and demons and perhaps even the, that turkey that I had up there a minute ago. Uh, and so you've got innocence that runs headlong into something which is a little more sinister and a little more occultic. We know there will be overly sexualized costumes that children shouldn't be allowed to wear. And, and can I just say that just as a good parenting rule, that if the costume says sexy, your child probably doesn't need to have it on. Uh, and unfortunately, not every parent exercises that same level of discretion as those costumes tend to make their way into, um, into the places that they don't belong. These are real issues, and we as Christians ought not simply to shrug them off. We ought to at least have a serious conversation, serious thoughts about the significance of these things. I had a seminary professor one time that said, if the devil can get us to laugh at it, we will never know when our hearts have softened to it. If the devil will get us to laugh at it, then we will never know when our hearts have softened to it. Case in point, one of Disney, Disney's corporations has recently released an animated series featuring Danny DeVito as the voice of none other than the devil himself. I have no intentions of tuning in. I'm not even going to mention the name of the show because I don't want to give it the credit that it is currently receiving in the media. But it is yet another example of kind of the guerrilla warfare that's taking place in our civilization to get to the hearts and minds of our children. If you make it laughable... If you make it cartoonish, 
If you make it a Halloween costume, if you do that, nobody will ever take it seriously. But the whole time we're amusing ourselves with animated devils and antichrists, the real thing, which we have to acknowledge there is a real, real enemy, it is waging a war against our children and our grandchildren. Joshua 5 provides a very stunning reminder of the fact that there is an unseen battle taking place alongside our physical battles. We've talked about already there. There's a real battle brewing in the book of Joshua that's there in the, in, the, in the area known as Gilgal. There is a fight that is about to unfold, and Jericho is firmly in the sights of the nation of Israel. And there's no doubt in my mind that the nation has confidence in God's goodness and God's provision. There's no doubt that they understand that God is going to give them into their hands the defeat of the city of Jericho. But we also know that any battle has risk. And going up against a walled fortress like Jericho carries substantial risk. Archaeologists tell us that Jericho was quite a citadel, that Jericho had very thick walls, that Jericho was, was seemingly impenetrable. And for a nation to go up against such a formidable foe would have carried great risk that, um, that all battles like that would carry but we also understand that as the nation is preparing for this physical confrontation, that there is more going on here that goes beyond the limits of our human vision. And that brings our attention to Joshua chapter 5 today, where we have one of the most stirring encounters in the Old Testament here, beginning in verse 13. If you've got your Bibles open to Joshua chapter 5 and you're able, I would ask you to stand with me as I read these words here from Joshua chapter 5, beginning in verse 13. When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, are you for us or our adversaries? And he said, no, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshiped and said to him, what does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for this stirring encounter that we find here in, your, in the pages of your scriptures, Lord. We know that this encounter between Joshua and the commander of the Lord's army has, has been a... Um, a remarkable thought for theologians and Bible scholars throughout the years. I pray, Father, that as we encounter it today, that it might challenge us and it might help us to know the battles that rage around us. We ask and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You could be seated. Over the last several weeks, we've been preparing for what is our first major battle in the promised land. No blood has been shed other than the blood commanded by God. We have seen Joshua established as the leader. We've crossed the Jordan River. We've prepared the people both physically and spiritually. They are now eating off the fruit of the land. They are no longer dependent upon the manna that God had provided. And so now their survival is found through the abundance of the land of promise. 
And it appears that this is the eve of the beginning of the siege of Jericho. Again, we don't have a battle strategy yet. And in Joshua's mind, what he has to do is go conquer the city. There is no plan that has been documented. There is no, no military strategy, undoubtedly, in the war room as they have prepared. They've, they've sort of gamed a plan. But at this time, God has not made his plan for Jericho known. And so what we have is this, is this private moment that concludes the fifth chapter of the book of Joshua where the general, Joshua, the commander of the nation, is surveying the city. And the text leads us to believe that this is a private moment, that no one else is around. He's not taking his generals with him. His commanders haven't accompanied him. Nobody is there with him except for Joshua. And you can almost imagine being in the mind of this great military leader as he is surveying what is about to unfold. He's undoubtedly thinking about the loss of life that is about to transpire. He's, he's thinking about his troops. He's thinking about those who are going to go to fight for this cause. And suddenly, while Joshua is all alone, a mysterious armed man appears out of nowhere. And again, Joshua asks a question that would be important if confronted with an armed man with his sword drawn. Uh, this is a good question to ask. Are you, are you with me or against me? Because what you say is going to determine my response. Are you for me or are you against me? This, this situation that had unfolded here would have been akin to a man mysteriously appearing with a cocked gun pointed in your direction. You would want to know, are you my friend, are you my ally, or are you my enemy? And the dialogue that unfolds is, is quite interesting. Because it would have been great if the man had said, Joshua, I am by your side. I have got your back. I am with you every step of the way. Because this guy, this guy is somebody you know. Somebody, he's powerful. He's strong. He, 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 there's mystery surrounding him. You want him on your side. Instead, the mysterious stranger says something totally different, something totally unexpected. Joshua said, are you with us or are you with our enemies? And the man says, no. Well, that's not the answer I wanted. He says, no, but I am the commander of the Lord's army. That's not the answer we're expecting. We weren't expecting no because no is a tough answer. I don't know if you're like me, but sometimes people will ask a question and they will provide multiple choice answers for, the, for you. And so they'll say, you know, uh, uh, you know, has this happened, or has this happened, or has this happened? And they'll kind of phrase it in, a, in multi-steps. And, and sometimes the answer to the question is yes, because all the premises that you've given me are true. And so instead of saying yes to one, you just say yes to all, because all the things you just said is true. And, and here, the word no suggests that Joshua asked the wrong question. Are you for me, are you for us, or our enemies? No. The stranger says no, but he at least does acknowledge his affiliation, and we don't need to miss the affiliation here. The stranger says he is the commander of the Lord's army. In other words, he's not for Joshua. He's not for the people in Jericho. He is the commander of the Lord's army. The stranger has one affiliation. He is in charge of one army. And that affiliation is with the Lord God Almighty. He answers to his superior. And in this situation, it is clear that his superior is God. Now, at least in this moment, what does that mean? That means that Joshua knows he's looking at a friend. 
because he knows that he is doing God's will. He knows that he is doing what God has planned. He knows he is where God wants him to be. And so this army commander that is with the Lord's army knows, okay, he's, he's on my side. But this answer gives the sense that if Joshua were to suddenly decide, I'm not going to do what I'm supposed to do, then that stranger who has his sword drawn may not be Joshua's friend anymore because this stranger doesn't answer to Joshua. This stranger answers to God. And so if Joshua had turned his back on the Lord, that intimidating figure there might not be so friendly to Joshua. Who is this? There's no denying the fact that this is the stranger that has appeared is not a man. It's not a human being. It's not someone with flesh and blood like ours, but it is clear that this is some sort of divine being. This is some sort of, a, of an angel in human form or perhaps something even greater. What we do know then is that he is the on-site leader for an unseen army that has been deployed. And this is crazy because he, he, you have the sense that this stranger can see the army and Joshua can't. The stranger says, I am the commander of the Lord's army, and Joshua has to imagine, what army? But this individual here, is, he is, the, he is the, the physical representation. He is the on-site leader of this army. If we were to put this in human terms, he's the Douglas MacArthur, the George Patton, or the Stonewall Jackson of Heaven's army. That's who this is. That's who this, this individual is. I couldn't imagine what it would be like to stand in the presence of such a warrior. I mean, again, you think back to stories about Douglas MacArthur in World War II. Douglas, Douglas MacArthur was a celebrity of sorts as, as, he, as he commanded the, the military. He was somebody that, that, that people were eager to hear news about. MacArthur would do press releases, and, and he, was a, he was a master of, of manipulating and controlling stories and things like that. And so to be in the presence of somebody like Douglas MacArthur would have been in the, to be in the presence of really like, a, like a, a powerful celebrity, like somebody you'd be like, hey, can I get your autograph? I mean, that's who, who he was, and people would have been like, I want to be in his presence being in the presence of this warrior, this mighty warrior, had to be stunning for Joshua, particularly as the moonlight danced in the polished reflection of that battle-ready sword. you imagine? And again, this is where you would think they'd pull a table up and lay some maps out, and the commander of the army would say, all right, Joshua, here's what you're going to do. Here's the strategy. Here's the plan. Here's how it's going to unfold. That's not what happens at all. Instead, what happens... Joshua realizes who this is, and he is told to remove his shoes because he is standing on holy ground. Thus far in the Bible, only one person has been told this. Only one person has been told to take off your shoes for your standing on holy ground, and that was Moses, and it was when God spoke to him from the burning bush there in the wilderness. And so what's happening here is the suggestion that this this, this meeting is the spiritual confirmation of God's calling on Joshua to lead the people to take the land. It also raises the question, who is this mysterious stranger meeting Joshua under the cover of night? Well, since we know that the only thing that can sanctify space and make it holy is the presence of God, 
There are many who believe that this angelic general might actually be more than an angel. Some have suggested that this might actually be the presence of Jesus himself. And we can leave that up to the theologians to debate. But if it is or if it isn't, I don't know that it changes the meaning of the event that is unfolded in this text. This text points to something very, very important. And if it's very important, it still may be misunderstood. But the fact of the matter is this. There is an invisible fight taking place around us. And again, this is unpopular. This is not something that our enlightened world wants to understand. But there is an unseen battle raging just beyond our perception, and it has dire consequences for our lives. You see, it is a battle against an unconventional enemy. The scene begins with Joshua surveying the city of Jericho, maybe taking notes. Good generals know their battlefield. Confederate General Stonewall Jackson was known for his expertise in using the terrain of a military theater for his benefit. Maybe Joshua was there looking for the scarlet cord that identified Rahab's home. Good generals know their allies. But Joshua was likely doing what any good general was doing. He was taking note of the enemy. He was paying attention to his opponent. And he was likely seeking the Lord's favor in the quiet of that place before the battle began to rage. Joshua's survey of Jericho would reveal that they were a conventional enemy. They had conventional defenses. They were flesh and blood just like everybody else. But the presence of the commander here suggests something totally different. You see, we are familiar with flesh and blood enemies. We are familiar with the enemies that we have had throughout the years. Even today, we watch the news of the battle between Ukraine and Russia, and there are real enemies on real battlefields that are taking real shots at each other. There is real death that is happening in these military encounters. We, as a nation, have enemies to this day, and honestly, it can be frightening to think about some of the enemies that we face today. But as the church, as God's people, our enemies are unconventional. Our enemies are not like these that are flesh and blood. As God's people, we must understand that there is an even greater enemy than geopolitical forces that we can circle on a map. And we must understand that there is a greater enemy who seeks to destroy that which God has done. Paul told the church in Ephesus, in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, he said, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. He goes on, he says, Therefore take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in this evil day, having done all to stand Paul makes it very clear that our enemy is not something conventional with flesh and blood, that our enemy is something that is very unconventional. We need to understand today that our enemy is not our brother or sister in Christ. We need to understand today, and we really need to understand this, our enemy as God's people is not a politician. Sometimes I think we look at the White House and Congress and we think that the bad guy is sitting in the Oval Office or is sitting behind a desk in Congress, but men and women, we need to understand that that is not the primary enemy of God's church. We need to understand that our enemy is not a communist government or an Islamic extremist. We need to understand that those are all things that can do great harm, but we need to understand the source. 
We may be threatened by all the perceived foes of our day. But Paul's reminder here is clear. Our battle is against rulers, authorities, cosmic powers, and spiritual forces of evil. And you say, I don't know what any of those things are. I don't know that I've ever encountered rulers, authorities, cosmic powers, or spiritual forces of evil. I can assure you, you have. See, this is the language the Bible uses that points to things like demons and evil, malicious, spiritual beings that wage war against the things of God. This is biblical language for that side of the battle. And we need to understand today that much of the evil in our world is demonic in nature. When you think of some of the most heinous things in our world, you need to recognize the demonic Need not run from it, need not to disregard it. We need to not be like C.S. Lewis and pay too close attention to it, but we at least need to acknowledge that reality that our battle is not against flesh and blood. Paul actually said in 1 Corinthians 10, 20, he said, I imply that what pagans sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. This may be unpopular. It may seem like it's not enlightened. It may not be something that fits into our scientific worldview. But this means that when an Islamic terrorist blows up something in the name of his God, there is no God there, but there is a demon that is posing as God. This means that when women sacrifice their children to a God named Choice, this is the same thing that tempted the Israelites when they worshiped a God named Molech, which is actually just a demon posing as a deity, leading people astray. I know, we're too civilized today to worship false gods, except that we're not. Because the truth is that people today are just as religious as they've always been. But instead of worshiping idols made from wood and stone, they worship idols that have been crafted deep within the human heart. It even means that when a Christian-sounding cult say they worship Jesus, well, they're not really worshiping Jesus, the only begotten Son of God, but a demon that's taken on the name of Jesus and is posing as some version of our Lord. I do not believe that our friends who knock on our doors on Saturday mornings are truly worshipers of Jesus, but someone posing as Jesus. Now, it's true. The newspaper, CNN, they rarely ascribe appropriate credit to the evil forces at work in our world. But the wise follower of Jesus can look around and see the effects of this unseen enemy, much like the wind. We don't always see the wind blow, but we can always see its effects. Just consider this innocuous Instagram post from this week. Uh, this is Chattanooga Pride Week. And I thought that happened in June, but Chattanooga's so proud that it does it twice a year. Uh, and that's today. So, uh, so after church, you go to Ross's Landing and uh, you can uh, uh, enjoy Pride, which is interesting that we celebrate something called Pride, which is the root sin of all the other sins, and we celebrate that. I noticed there on the right, though, that uh, one hand holding up a sign says kids zone kids zone and so at what is very much an adult oriented event uh, there's an invitation for kids to come it's almost like a church fall festival there's a kids zone with inflatables and bouncy houses and things like that you could have skipped church today and headed down to the riverfront but I'm glad you didn't we have an unconventional enemy 
fighting against us. But even though there is an unconventional enemy, we do not need to lose heart because there are unseen allies fighting on our behalf. Joshua's stranger was visible, but he said he represented an army that nobody could see. That had to be an eerie moment for Joshua. Imagine standing in a place knowing that you're surrounded by things that you can't see. I'm the commander of the Lord's army, he said. You imagine looking out across a plain at empty space and contemplating the reality that in some way or another, a legion of angels stood in formation ready to fight. You may not like to think about it, but there is a battle that's being fought every day all around us. There is a battle for the hearts and minds of our children. There is a battle for the eyes of our husbands. There is a battle for the hearts of our wives. There is a battle for the sanctity of life. There is a battle for the effectiveness of our churches. There is a battle for the soul of our nation, and it remains largely unseen. You may not believe me, or you may even think that I'm crazy at this point, but I firmly believe that Paul was inspired by God when he wrote, and so these words to the Ephesians are true, and that our battle is not against the spiritual forces of evil. Revelation 12, 12 further conforms, confirms this. He says, therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them, but woe to you, O earth and sea. Listen, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows his time is short. Thus says the Lord God Almighty. There is a real devil, a real Satan who knows that his time is short. He knows what fate is awaiting. And while he is waiting, he is attacking and he is tearing apart everything that he can get his hands on. Paul cautions the church at Ephesus again in Ephesians 5, 15. He says, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. The King James Version says circumspectly, which means to pay careful attention to have heightened alert. If you were downtown Chattanooga, you were walking down the street after dark, maybe you're leaving a show at the Tivoli, maybe you had a nice dinner downtown, you wouldn't walk carelessly down the streets. You would be paying attention, perhaps more than even so you would be in daylight. Why? Because you're, you're aware of the risk. You're aware of the fact that there are places to hide. You're aware of the fact that there are places for enemies to lurk. If we are not careful, we will allow the unseen battle that's taking place around us to cause tremendous casualties before we ever know there's been an attack. You see, not only is there an unconventional enemy, not only is there an unseen ally, there's also a very uncanny strategy. Instead of that battle tips, Joshua was instructed to take his shoes off, recognizing the presence of Jesus. He bows down. He's in a very vulnerable position, but he's not concerned about the vulnerable position because in his vulnerability, he is displaying his trust in God. Paul told the Ephesians that they need to be equipped for battle, but Paul did not send them to the army surplus store to get them ready for battle. Instead, in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, he goes on to say in verse 13, he says, Therefore take up the whole armor of God that you might be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. If you're going to stand a chance in the battle, then you have to be equipped. But the gear given to the Christian is much different than the gear used by a conventional soldier. We're first told that, that our armor contains a belt of truth. If I were in a physical battle 
and you were to issue me a belt, I would like for that belt to be holstered with a sidearm and a few magazines of ammunition. Amen? Uh, If you're going to battle, that's what you want on your belt. But in an unconventional battle, we're told that it is truth that holds everything together. Truth is the thing that we must have close at hand. I understand as we look today that the battle we face today is for the very definition of truth. We don't even know what truth is anymore. It's being redefined. Vocabulary is changing. And that's not even getting to the point of gospel truth. We have to wear a belt of truth. You hear things today like, like my truth. What in the world is that? My truth? You on a separate wavelength than everybody else? Because true is true. There's no such thing as your true or my truth. If there is truth, it is truth. You don't get to invent your own. It's a belt of truth. You have government agencies starting things like the Disinformation Governance Board. I'm sure you heard about that. There was a book about it called 1984, and in that book it was simply called The Ministry of Truth. A government agency defining that which is true and not? Not even dealing with the gospel truth of who Jesus is and what his desires are. We're told that we wear a breastplate of righteousness, an armor of righteousness. If I'm being shot at, (laughs) I would much rather my body armor be made out of Kevlar or something similar. I'd like for it to be able to repel a a bullet. But in this fight, this fight against an unconventional enemy, in this fight against evil, righteousness makes the best armor because it rejects even the most potent attacks. As a man striving to walk in Jesus' righteousness, I cannot fall for traps that have been set. But here again, we are doing our dead level best to tarnish any hint of righteousness in our lives and in our churches. Just consider the sex abuse scandals that have affected our own denomination. And we're supposed to be walking in righteousness. Paul goes on. Shoes of readiness. In a conventional battle, I think I would want comfortable waterproof boots Something that was tough enough to charge, supple enough to retreat. Sounds good to me. But in a spiritual battle, my shoes are useful for carrying me forward, making advances into enemy territory through the gospel. I need to be ready in season and out of season to bring the gospel into the darkness. Paul says we need a shield of faith. Conventionally, a shield would be appropriate to repel the enemy's projectiles. If you watch a riot squad out putting down a riot, you will see them walking with those big plastic shields so they can see through it so that the rioters don't have the means to throw things at them. A shield would be appropriate. But spiritually, the shield of faith is what we are called to carry. And the shield of faith combined with the righteousness of the armor of righteousness can defend all the enemy's attacks. He calls for a helmet of salvation. In combat, a helmet protects the brain against injury. Spiritually, though, salvation helps to protect our minds. The Bible challenges us to renew our minds because we 
are emotional beings. And emotions can be overcome by temptation and things like that. We respond to emotion. We respond in, in many times negative ways to our emotion. But if our minds are being renewed by salvation, and if our salvation remains intact, no matter what emotion we're dealing with, it reminds us constantly of our allegiances to the Lord and gives us the mind of Christ. And then the only offensive weapon we're called to carry in this battle is the sword, which is the word of God. In combat, the offensive weapon is useful for pushing back the enemy, but in a spiritual battle, it is the word which is our offense, and we must be proficient in its execution. If you're a soldier, you probably spend some time in the firing range. You, you, are, you are taken to the firing range, and you are trained over and over again in the proper way to carry and fire a weapon, in so much that every follower of Christ must grow more and more comfortable with the handling of our weapon of choice, which is the word of God. Pastor, I didn't sign up for a battle. I would just want to come to church this morning, go eat lunch afterwards and enjoy the rest of my Sunday. I didn't sign up for any of this. This sounds like a military enlistment. This doesn't sound anything like just going to church on Sunday morning. Well, that's what it is. Because whether you like it or not, there's a battle raging. And you're part of it. Your kids are part of it. Actively being targeted. That's kind of scary. I'm thankful for 1 John chapter 4, verse 4. The apostle says this, little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. In this fight that you may or may not be interested in fighting, you need to understand this, that the one fighting with us and for us is greater than anything our enemies can muster. I imagine Joshua walked away from this encounter with the commander of the Lord's army thinking, how do we lose? If, if, this, if this being is for us and there is an unseen host of angels fighting for us, then how in the world can we lose? Jesus even promised to his church that the gates of hell would not prevail against it. Those are Jesus' words. And all that is still true to this day. We read in Joshua chapter 6, verse 1. Because the Israelites, the city of Jericho, had been shut off. It says in 6 verse 1, Now Jericho was shut up inside and outside because the people of Israel. None went out and none came in. And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hands with its king and mighty men of valor. We must remember that we do not have to lose our battles. We must remember that we do not have to lose the battle against sin and temptation. We only lose because we forget who we're fighting for and we forget that we are constantly under assault. I want to do something different this morning. Recognizing the reality of this battle that is being fought, recognizing that it appears today that the battle is first and foremost being fought in our homes with our marriages with our children, with our grandchildren. I want to do something 
in these next few moments, it's a little different. I want you to gather with your family. If you don't have a family here, then that, that's okay. Uh, if, you're, if it's just you, then, uh, then look around. I'm sure there's a family that will be more than willing to, uh, to, to adopt you and bring you in. I want you to find your kids. And so if your kids are sitting with somebody else, I want them to, in just a moment to get up and go find their parents. And I want us to just gather together as families. And as we do so, I want to come before the Lord and ask that God would protect our families and that God would give us the courage to stand and fight boldly for the hearts of our children, for the hearts of our grandchildren, for the hearts of our spouses, because we know that's where the attack and that's where the fight is happening. It's terrifying to me to think about some of the things that our children are having to deal with. I've heard just in recent days of 14 and 15-year-olds committing suicide. What in the world is going on in our culture where a 14 or 15-year-old thinks that the only solution for their problem is to take their own life? I heard of one yesterday where the reason, the, was it a 15-year-old that took his life, took her life? 14 or 15 because of TikTok. How in the world did we get to that place where an app on a phone is cited as a cause for suicide? We look at that and say, that's, that's rare. It's not. Talk to our teachers. Talk to our counselors. Talk to the people who interact with our children on a daily basis, and you will find that these things happen more and more and more frequently. And so many times, what have we done as parents? We've literally given the enemy access directly to the minds and hearts of our kids. Here, take this device. Here, take this app. Here, take this, this, this entertainment and spend time in front of it. Let it consume you. Let it capture your mind and capture your heart and capture your vision. You say, Pastor, it's not a big deal. Really? Take it away and see what happens. Take it away and see the addiction manifest. I want us to circle up as families. And again, if, you, if you're here alone or don't have a family with you, that's, that's fine. Uh, find somebody around you and just, uh, um, this is not COVID-friendly, so I'm not worried about it. But, uh, but if you're comfortable, just putting your, putting your hand on your, on your family, hopefully that's what happens. And uh, I want to just take just a, just a couple of moments in silence for us as families to pray together. And, um, and I just want to ask God to protect our homes, our families, our marriages, our children. We need to be doing this more as a church. And in the context of Joshua chapter 5, I think it's appropriate. So just move around in these next couple moments, and, uh, and we're going we're gonna to pray together here in just a, just a little bit.
Father, in this moment and in this place, there are prayers being lifted all across this room for the sake of families. There are prayers being offered for the hearts and minds of children and grandchildren. There are prayers being offered to protect the hearts of husbands and wives. And God, we know you hear each one. God, we acknowledge today and we confess today that we have not placed a priority on this as we should. And so God, I pray that you would forgive our negligence for those homes that are broken. God, I pray for restoration. I pray that not only that we would know that you forgive sin, but that we might also be able to forgive sin. For children that have gone astray, we pray for the prodigal moment that they look back and realize that their father's home is a place of safety, is a place of reconciliation, it's a place of hope, and that those wayward children might come back. For those whose hearts have drifted away from the Savior, who have embraced worldviews and philosophies that are opposed to the things of God. I pray that the gospel truth might swell up inside and that they would know who Jesus is and what he offers. And that they would know that Jesus and the promise of the gospel is better than anything that this world has to offer. That there is nothing at a pride festival in Chattanooga, that there is nothing in the pursuit of a career, that there is nothing in the pursuit of all of these things that is better than who Jesus is and what he offers. And I pray, Father, that today, if we've been on the sidelines of the battle, that we would happily enlist with the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the shoes of the readiness of the gospel, the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the word of God. And that, God, we would understand who our true enemy 
is. So God, today, protect our homes, protect our families, protect our children, our grandchildren, our great-grandchildren, and God, save our marriages. For your glory and for your good and for your name, from this generation to the next. We ask these things today in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior, who reigns forever and ever. Thanks for listening. If you would like more information about Chattanooga Valley Baptist, check us out on the web at cvbchurch.org. If you would like to join in person, we worship every Sunday morning at 1045. We're just minutes from downtown Chattanooga. We hope to see you soon.